Good evening. Welcome to Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Have you wondered what do researchers do at Western University or any university around the world? Have you wondered what do grad students do? Well, that's what this show is about. We are a bunch of grad students and we tell the story and life of about of other grad students particularly at Western. Well, my name is Nav and I'm joined by my co-host Vicky. Hello. How's it going, Vicky? Not too bad. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. I'm actually quite excited about our guest tonight. I am mm. too. Mhm. Well, I read about his research and it's it's it seems like a real cool topic, especially cuz um it's just so relevant in today's party culture where I uh, I'm where a friend of mine had a bad head of marijuana once. Of course it's a friend, okay. Anyway, <laughs> um we have here with us uh Chris Norris. He's a PhD student at the Addiction Research Group in Neuroscience, a PhD in Neuroscience. Am I right, Chris? Yeah. Uh Hey guys, uh thanks for having me. Yeah. No, it's good to be here. No problem. Thanks for coming over, Chris. So, which lab do you work in? I work uh, with Stephen Laviolette. Mm-hmm. So he, like uh, Nav mentioned, is part of the addiction research group. So that's primarily what we study: uh, addiction and psychiatric illness. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, just a little bit of background about yourself. Um, what brings you to Western, and particularly like addiction research, and and specifically about cannabinoids? Well, I did my undergrad and my master's at Wilfrid Laurier University. Um, my undergrad was in in psych, but I took a course in my third year, which was a research and biopsych course. And in that course, we actually had access to um, our own rats to run experiments on, and we actually gave them THC and did behavioral experiments, which got me interested in cannabinoid research, which then led me to do a master's in Paul Mallet's lab, um, doing operant conditioning work with. Uh, some of the compounds in cannabis mm-hmm. um which then led me to hearing about S- Steve's lab and I really liked the research they was doing so when I decided to do my PhD I thought it would be a good idea to come here when you when you mentioned operant conditioning um what's that so um I know a lot of people have heard of those those really yeah. old pigeon studies and BF Skinner so when you see that the pigeon had to peck a, something like 10 times and then get a reward that's considered operant conditioning so I wanted to look at exactly how cannabis chemicals could affect those processes as in like a reward and um punishment processes yeah Oh, and just them deciding what to do in order to get that reward. So occasionally they'll they'll be presented with five different lights. One will turn on and they have to peck that one and they get a reward. Okay. If they don't peck that one, they get punished. So what what processes are involved in them uh picking the right one mm-hmm. and not picking the wrong one or going before that light actually comes on and cannabinoids could be involved in that process. So I guess that leads you to your research here then which is I guess um talking about cannabinoids THC and CBD. Yeah, so mm-hmm. just a um little bit of background. So a cannabinoid is what we call chemicals in cannabis or ones that are similar in structure to those compounds. So the cannabis plant actually has at least 80 distinct compounds 
all of which have a variety of effects in the brain. So it makes it really difficult to study because anytime anyone uses it, they're actually having a polydrug effect as opposed mm -hmm. to a single chemical like a lot of other drugs. Um, so we really need to dissociate those compounds and examine them separately to really know what's going on before we can look at the what using the plant to do together does. Mm -hmm. So so when I so when you ingest a cannabinoid, is it the cannabinoid itself that is made up of many other like components or is it stimulating the the brain to release other stuff, like what's happening um, over here? Uh, yeah, it actually depends on the compound. Okay. So uh, the two primary ones, the large, the ones that are the largest constituents of the plant and the two that I study primarily are THC and CBD. I know a lot of people have heard of THC because mm -hmm. that's the one that produces the high that people mm -hmm. are using cannabis primarily for. So um, THC is structurally similar to some compounds in your brain, which are known as endocannabinoids which stands for endogenous cannabinoids. Um, endogenous means created by the brain itself. Um, so the, these endocannabinoids play a vital role in the way your brain actually functions. They're involved in feelings of um, liking, emotion, but they're also primarily what are known as neuromodulators, and they sort of change the way other neurotransmitter systems function. So THC sort of co-ops that system. It can bind to the receptors that are meant for your endocannabinoids and alter how it works, which is how it produces the high. But CBD, on the other hand, does bind to receptors, but completely different ones, known the some serotonin receptors, which is a different neurotransmitter system. But also, it stimulates the release of endocannabinoids. So that's why it's really um, important to study these compounds individually, because they have, despite being superficially similar in structure, they can have such incredibly different opposite effects in the brain. So you mentioned that um, you have different types of receptors in the brain, and they can be activated by these different um, types of cannabinoids. So what is the differentiation between how THC will act on the brain versus CBD? So do you mean like mm -hmm. um, how they stimulate various structures? Yeah. Or? yeah. Um, so so like I said, THC, because of its um, its structure, it it bonds to um, primarily something called a CB1 receptor. So CB stands for cannabinoid. So it's the first cannabinoid receptor. There, um, We know um, conclusively that there are two. There are some research emerging that there might be more. But um, CB1 is the one that is primarily found in your brain. CB2 is expressed a lot in you, the rest of your body and is involved in immunity and things like that. So um, THC bonds to that receptor and changes the way those those neurons are working. And um, so <clears throat> the area in the brain I primarily study is called the nucleus accumbens. And the nucleus accumbens is involved in feelings of liking something. Uh, so let's say that you, you think about something you enjoy doing and you you get this feeling that of that you want to do it, you like doing it, and that it's going to motivate you to go do that thing. It's actually the nucleus accumbens that is producing that effect. And even within the accumbens, there are two distinct areas. There's what's called the nucleus accumbens core and the nucleus accumbens shell. So the core is, is um, primarily what we call a limbic motor interface in that when you have those feelings and you want to do something, it's what 
coordinates essentially those are the motor areas and those uh, emotion areas and actually gets you to move towards that thing you like or actually away from that thing you don't like. Okay, so it's like the middle person between your emotions and your actions. Yeah, essentially. Okay. Um, and then the, the area that I study is the shell. And the reason why I study the shell is because it's the one that's actually involved in that feeling of liking, the thing that makes you feel good or the thing that makes you feel bad, um, which makes it even much more relevant for drugs of abuse. A lot of the action of drugs of abuse is actually through the, the shell because when uh, a drug of abuse is producing that good feeling, that motivation, that high, it's changing the function of the way that the shell works. So THC does act in that area to make people feel good but it can also act in that area to make people feel bad. So, um, and CBD also acts in this area, but in a completely different manner. Because, uh, like I mentioned, it, it affects the serotonin system. But the serotonin system is also vital for the functioning of the shell. So while they both act on the same area, they're, they're acting very differently and have, in some ways, opposite effects. Yeah, so, and we yeah. hear about this all the time. So people will take will ingest some sort of cannabinoid, smoke, marijuana, that sort of thing. And other people will say it was the most amazing experience of their life. There were other people who had the worst experience of their life, paranoid symptoms, just a feeling of anxiety. So how can we, how can the same compound, well, not the same compound, but the same drug elicit these two different effects? Well, so it's... Yeah, that's um, what we're looking at for one of my projects for my PhD mm -hmm. is is trying to um, parse out exactly what's going on there, um, why two different people can use the same amount and have completely different experiences, or why one person can use an increasing dose and be more likely to have those negative effects. Because a lot of people view comp drugs as if the more I take, I'm just going to get more of the same effect. Mm -hmm. But most drugs are more complicated than that. And you, um, THC has produces what's known as a biphasic effect in the sense that you push up the dose, you actually switch what it does. Um, so we wanted to find out what the actual mechanism behind that was. And we primarily studied the, uh, the nucleus accumbens shell because from what we know about its uh, study previously is it's involved in both that feeling of liking and that feeling of disliking. So it changes its activity based on if you like something, but also if, um, let's say, I don't know, you lost a, a game or uh, you um, took a, uh, a drug that made you feel really bad, like a pharmaceutical, it's probably altering that functioning of that, that, that area as well. And uh, because it's involved in both those things, we figure that it was probably what THC was, was acting in that structure specifically. So could that also explain why the same person would experience like totally different reactions from the same drug? Yeah, so some previous work has tried to look at just generally mechanistically how it could be producing both these effects. And they discovered, interestingly, just like there's a difference between the nucleus cumbens core and the nucleus cumbens shell, within the shell itself, there's actually functionally distinct areas. So at the front of the structure, the anterior, is what was dubbed the hedonic hotspot. So stimulation of that point produces reward, and stimulation of the rest of the structure primarily produces aversion, so dislike. Um, 
they so researchers wanted to see exactly what's going on and why that could that was what was happening so um it's important to uh this effect um understand another neurotransmitter system called the opiate system so so that's uh, another type of drug, right? Different yeah. types of opiates, right? So something like heroin, mm-hmm. um, its primary method of action is on the opiate system. But within the opiate system, there are three distinct subtypes of receptors. Uh, there is the mu opiate receptor, there is the delta opiate receptor, and the kappa opiate receptor. So mu is the one that primarily um, opiates that produce highs act on. So it bonds to that and produces reward by stimulating that receptor. And just like I mentioned with cannabinoids, those receptors are actually there because they're a vital function in the, the normal brain mm-hmm. that you produce compounds that are structurally similar that stimulate those structures. So again, heroin is co-opting a system in order to produce a high. Uh, so within the hedonic hotspot, that mu is primarily expressed. There's a concentration of that receptor in the hedonic hotspot, so, which mostly explains why stimulation of that structure is producing reward. Now, delta is sort of diffuse throughout the shell, so it doesn't really seem to have a role in either of these things. Um, drugs, again, like heroin, do bond to delta, and but its, its effects are basically similar to mu, although there are a couple distinctions, but kappa is really the black sheep of the opiate system, where its uh, stimulation is very different. So I know a lot of people have heard of the drug salvia. Its mm-hmm. primary method of action is bonding to the kappa opiate receptor, and you notice how different that effect is from something like heroin. It produces this dissociative hallucinogenic state that causes profound aversion in a lot of people. So and interestingly enough, the kappa receptor is barely expressed at all in the hedonic hotspot and actually exists mostly in the rest of the structure, which is and um, why we hypothesized, and many other researchers did, that stimulation of that receptor is what produced, was producing the aversion. So it was differential stimulation of these different receptor subtypes mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. probably how the structure was producing both reward and aversion. So I guess that leads you to um, to what you're researching now, which is how the anterior and posterior nucleus accumbens shell relates to how THC and CBD actually function on um, this structure and uh, its functionality and the output. Yeah. So like I mentioned, uh, THC bonds to the CB1 receptor, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, notice it's not the, the the opiate receptors, but the thing is there's, a, there's so much crosstalk between these systems and it's vital for them to work in tandem for the proper functioning of the brain. And like I mentioned, the cannabinoid system is primary, primarily neuromodulatory in that it's altering the, the release of these other neurotransmitters. So stimulation of the CB1 receptors in the hedonic hotspot, we hypothesized would cause a downstream, so a later release of those natural mu opiate receptor stimulators. But when you were, when if you were to infuse THC into the rest of the structure, you would have this release of these natural kappa receptor stimulators. So while you were confusing the same compound, if you infuse it into different areas, you would produce different effects. So how do you end up doing that in your research? So you have to be really specific to get that specific hedonic hotspot versus the rest of the the nucleus accumbens shell. Yeah. So a problem with presenting the the compound to the entire brain, like you mentioned, is that 
it's hard to know what it's stimulating. And mm -hmm. because there's so many different areas that interact, you could be influencing it. Right. So what we do is we um, perform surgeries on rats. We anesthetize them, and I drill very small holes into their skull mm -hmm. and lower what are known as cannula. They're very small tubes into the skull to the area that I want to administer the drug to. We then apply dental acrylic, so it's just the sort of like when you go to the dentist, it's that stuff that dries really quickly, mm -hmm. and you mix like a powder and a liquid together. So it hardens and makes those cannulas stay there. So now the rat no longer has an exposed skull, but we have direct access to the area we want to look at. Just put little dust caps on and let the rat recover. Then okay. later, when the rat is, is recovered, um, generally they have pretty good success. They're, they're fine. Um, we take injectors and inject very small amounts of THC directly into either hedonic hotspot or the other parts of the structure. And what we found is exactly what we predicted. When we administered THC into that hedonic hotspot, we produced a strong reward that when we blocked opiate receptors, went away. So this was mm -hmm. a, um, we produced reward and it was in fact mediated by this concentration of opiate receptors. Wow. And then when, yeah. yeah, when we administered into the rest of the structure, we produced an aversion, so a dislike. And when we blocked those kappa receptors, it went away too, indicating that this was an aversion that was produced by stimulation of those downstream kappa. And just to be sure, we switched it. So we administered THC while blocking kappa in the hedonic hotspot, and we administered THC while blocking mu in the rest of the structure. And uh, the effects were not blocked. So you still saw this reward in the hedonic hotspot and this aversion in the rest of the structure, indicating how specific this effect was. So is this tied into your um, your investigation about how it your about how it affects the fear memory and the effects of the traumatic syndromes and such? Yeah. So um, like I mentioned at the beginning, uh, another way thing our uh, lab looks at is psychiatric illness, and uh, the shell is involved in. Like I said, the, this feeling of dislike and is actually involved in encoding or fear memory. So what are we known as associative fear memory? So when you start to pair a stimulus with a feeling, the shell is involved in that process. So the other things I do for my PhD looks at how CBD and THC change the way um, you encode fear memory and. Uh, so the, the project I'm doing right now is about how THC and how we still see that dissociation between the hedonic hotspot and the rest of the structure, although results we found were a little unexpected. So um, what we did is the rats either got a small foot shock or a large foot shock. The small foot shock normally doesn't create any kind of fear. The large foot shock does, and they had that shock paired with a scent. So we use almond or peppermint. And then they had another scent that was just presented with no foot shock. So we ended up with uh, one scent, which we call this. Um, so this is the, the CS minus and the CS plus is what we call them. Stands for condition stimulus. So the CS minus is that scent that wasn't paired with anything. The CS plus is the one that was paired with a shock. So now, which one, yeah. the almond or the peppermint? Which um, one it's was? counterbalanced because we don't okay. want any rat to just a natural <laughs> preference for one or the other to okay. affect the experiment. All right. um, so when you, we administered THC into that uh, the back of the structure, that one mm -hmm. that produced aversion, when they were only given a small foot shock, we actually made them form a fear memory to something that shouldn't have been fearful. Which, mm -hmm. when you think back to, to some cannabis users, that makes sense. That 
They're afraid of things that aren't normally fearful. A small bump makes them think that someone's after them, that uh, non-fearful stimuli become fearful. But the unexpected result is that when we administered THC into the anterior shell, so that hedonic hotspot, we made the rats afraid of everything. So that CS minus became fearful, but this was only to the strong shock. So to the weak shock, there was no effect, but to the strong shock, they became afraid of the CS minus, which shouldn't have happened, which kind of indicates that this fear memory story is a little more complicated than the, mm-hmm. the, the reward story in that both these areas are probably playing a role in paranoia and how THC alters fear. And this, this also says that, um, so a lot of this stuff was based on the fact that PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder um, sufferers, use cannabis at three times higher than the rest of the population, mm-hmm. which made us think that they were potentially self-medicating. But with the THC, it sort of shows that they're probably making themselves worse. And especially with street weed, um, the uh, THC levels are getting pushed up higher and higher as recreational de- users demand higher um, amounts of this compound since it's producing the high. Um, but like I mentioned at the beginning, the compound CBD or cannabidiol actually has a lot of promise as a therapeutic for psychiatric illness. Is that something, do you think, that the government or anyone in the medical marijuana industry may take advantage of, putting more CBD in in their cannabis treatments? Yeah, so medical marijuana is, is pretty different from the recreational stuff, which mm-hmm. is why I, I think it's a good idea for PTSD patients to have access to that, mm-hmm. because... Um, a lot of medical marijuana um, growers, they test their plants and to see exactly the amount of CBD and THC that's in the plant. So it's more regulated then? Yeah, it's more regulated. Mm-hmm. And so the PTSD patient can be like, okay, I don't want THC. I want a high CBD strain. And they're going to buy that from their grower. Mm-hmm. Because um, with uh, using that same sort of associative fear memory experiment that I did with the THC, showed that when you give them CBD during that phase where you're trying to pair that fear memory to the, trying to pair that scent to the shock, what happens is that um, when you try to recall that shock the next day, you present them with a scent with no fear, with no shock. Normally they're afraid, right, of that scent because now they've formed a fear memory. Mm-hmm. But if you did administer CBD during that um, pairing, the fear memory disappears. Okay. So they're just, they just don't um, associate the fear with that memory, so they still remember the memory. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. the implication for a a human with PTSD is that, um, interestingly enough, so when you form a new memory, it's actually, and when you remember something and then it's put back into storage, it's the same process. So when you remember something, it actually allows for editing to happen. So it's how your memory can be unreliable. When you remember something, you can actually edit that memory and re-encode it. And your brain treats that re-encoding exactly the same way it treated the original coding. So in our um, ex- animal experiments, we showed we blocked that encoding of the memory, right? Mm-hmm. With a PTSD patient, if you were to get them to recall that memory, that fear, the thing that makes them fearful, so like could um, be any a, stimulus like a yeah. crack or a, a or flash a, of light or something. Yeah, that mm-hmm. they've associated. Like so, if if it's um, someone who's um, has PTSD from combat, right. a, a bang or a flash of light it instantly evokes those feet, those negative, fearful feelings. Mm-hmm. If you were to administer CBD when you, that happened, they would re-encode that memory, but the association that's pairing that feeling to that memory would be blocked. So while they mm-hmm. still would remember exactly what happened in combat, next time they remembered it, 
the fear would be gone. So just in theory, if this was used as a treatment, does the CBD, I guess, infusion or ingestion in humans, does that need to be constant in order to stop that re-encoding of the fearful memory? Or is it once you stop taking CBD, you can still remember that fear or not? Well, we think that it should be something that after a few treatments should stop, but Mm -hmm. that's why clinical work is important. Right. Um, so this is all hypothetical in humans, and you really, we really need a lot more clinical work. But mm-hmm. I think that this is showing that this is really has promise, and um, because you can't, I couldn't administer CBD directly into a brain area. Of right. A human. Yeah. <laughs> you have to present it to the entire brain, which mm-hmm. will cause complications because For sure. every we can, the, yeah. yeah. We can't have humans with tubes sticking out of the head. Exactly. That's, <laughs> that's not very ethical. No, it's not. Time. Yeah, not so much. Um, so because there's so many different areas that interact with the shell, mm-hmm. okay. presenting it to the whole brain could completely mm-hmm. change the way it functions right. because it's right. very heavy interaction. And um, the problem at the moment is that it's very difficult to get just the CBD. Even okay. though CBD strains have okay. very small amounts of THC in them, they right. try mm-hmm. their best. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why I think it's important for us to categorize these compounds, mm-hmm. synthesize them, and turn them into real pharmaceuticals, as opposed to just using a plant which has a varying dose between mm-hmm. every batch. Well, I think it's important for them to have access to that because that's the best they have now. Mm-hmm. We r- I really think that we should move into treating them like real pharmaceutical drugs the same way yeah. we treat anything. Right. It's used as a treatment for a psychiatric illness. So THC is responsible for the cerebral euphoria, the high, whereas yeah. CBD is responsible for the... So um, it doesn't actually produce any noticeable effect mostly, in that okay. I mean that it doesn't produce a reward or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, there's some other research going on in my lab that uh, I'm not directly involved with that shows that when you infuse both those compounds at the same time, mm-hmm. CBD actually changes the way CHC is functioning in the brain. Mm-hmm. It can actually alter it and actually reduce some of its negative side effects. Wow. Um, okay. Which is interesting. because, And uh, so that is another problem with uh, this steadily increasing THC in the recreational strains. Right. That mm-hmm. when you redu- get rid of the CBD, you're actually mm-hmm. making these this this plant more dangerous right Mm because it makes people more prone to those paranoia effects yeah Yeah. right and um like i know that's been discussed in the news a lot lately that some people through repeated constant use of cannabis can develop psychosis and it's the Mm -hmm. thc that's doing that so the higher you push up the thc the more those Mm -hmm. genetically susceptible individuals could actually and you're probably exacerbating the process then of the original problem that you had to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Chris, um, we're nearly winding up on time over here, but I'm curious, are you um, like, are you involved in this voice for medical marijuana and cannabinoids? Yeah, I, I try to get involved mm-hmm. in um, some of those things because like I said, I really believe that CBD has such promise for treating psychiatric illness. Um, so, uh, if you want to follow my advisor on Twitter, he's actually very active. So Stephen LaViolette, or um, I'm on Facebook. I have Twitter as well. Okay. Um, and a ResearchGate profile mm-hmm. is where I post mm-hmm. most of the stuff we do. Okay. Could you mention it Twitter handle? Um, I think it's at uh, Q-A-B-A-L-I-S-T-I-C. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll put the link up on our website for sure. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Chris. Well, so... 
we're out of time right now, so we're going to wind up the show. This was Chris Norris talking about his research with me, Nav, and Vicky. It was was a pleasure talking about the medical effects of marijuana and um, just how marijuana affects the different parts of the brain and what its implications are in the medical field. So this has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students. If you would like to get in touch with us, you could email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com or if you just want to check out our previous shows, you could log on, you could check out gradcast.ca or just any website where we have awesome podcasts like iTunes, Podbean and Google Play. We air every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on Radio Western. Have a good evening. See you next Tuesday. The theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.